Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the most magnificent United States of America. Today is the 7th of December, 2020. And I'm going to be continuing along with a, a very in-depth discussion of the kind of bioenergetics and signaling that goes on in T lymphocytes. And so that's how we're going to proceed. It's going to blossom out into more of a larger description and detail of how the immune system, of course, links back into our discussion of aging. And that's where we are right now. I think we're probably on episode 14 or 15 in this arc of lectures on the Authentic Biochemistry series. And I think we've put in an installation of three video lectures, which are on my YouTube feed which, of course, uh, act as uh, synoptic for the many episodes of the podcast, which is just audio. So hopefully you've been able to follow along with these and uh, you're getting um, the kind of information you need so that you can generate some knowledge, very specific knowledge on how the immune system is associated, not only with the corruption of the healthy body as one ages, but actually how the immune system coordinates the aging process. And that's ultimately where we're leading at the uh, dialectical event ontological levels. All right, so let's get right back into where we were. We were talking about interleukin-7. And I was telling you that IL-7 plays an important role in survival of naive T cells because it increases the expression of an anti-epitotic factor B-cell lymphoma 2, which is just called BCL2. It's a protein, of course. And I told you that besides promoting the survival of lymphocytes and leukin 7 signals as well to promote the growth and proliferation of double negative uh, T lymphocytes at stage 4. It, it does so via enhancement of a transferrin receptor CD71 expression system and also another really important protein complex has to be set up and operating, and that's the amino acid transporter CD98. Um, we were talking also about how interleukin-7 operates according to glucocorticoids. So I mentioned to you the glucocorticoids bind to their cytoplasmic receptor, which of course is the GR, and that, that receptor then translocates to the nucleus, where it acts, of course, as a transcription factor to induce the expression of genes involved in cell cycle arrest and indeed apoptosis. Then we went on to tell you that leukemogenic events, such as the AKT hyperactivation, were implicated in previous papers in glucocorticoid resistance in a subset of patients uh, who uh, had yeah, a specific type of leukemia, which we're going to talk about in a little bit more fluid detail in a moment. Um, so it looks like addition of interleukin-7 actually induces glucocorticoid resistance. The uh, papers also tend to suggest that an intrinsic glucocorticoid resistance is a hallmark of T- ALL. Now, that's going to be lymphoblastic leukemia, which I'm going to talk about directly. Particularly um, T lymphocyte ALL, which arises at the early thymic precursor stage. We call that ETP. 
And also it characterizes a subset of non-early thymic precursor T-alls, which we can also get into later. So you have GC, that's glucocorticoid-resistant, non-ETP, T-all disease. And it can be identified by an augmented JAK-STAT signaling pathway, all of which responds to interleukin-7 stimulation. So that means that removing interleukin-7 from the media in these studies sensitizes these cells as a subset of ETPTLs to glucocorticoids, but not to any other potential pharmacotherapies. So interleukin-7-induced glucocorticoid resistance in that subset of T-all disease is independent of genetic drivers of the pathway activity. Instead, it probably reflects a shared biochemical property that can be functionally defined further down the road. The addition of a clinically available JAK1-2 inhibitor, which we do now have in our hands, that's ruxolitinib, or a newly developed JAK3 inhibitor, which is yet to have uh, marketing in the pharmaceutical industry, can reverse intrinsic glucocorticoid resistance. So together, those studies are going to support the use of JAK inhibitors, that kinase, right, the Janus kinase inhibitors, to increase the efficacy of glucocorticoids in a biologically defined subset of these leukemia patients. Now, why are we talking about leukemia? Remember, it's because glucocorticoid signaling is also a key feature in the aging process in the immune system, okay? This is why you listen to Authentic Biochemistry, because I'm explaining to you how um, known codified diseases such as lymphoblastic leukemia, which happens in juvenile populations, some of the pathobiochemistry associated with that disease is going to map onto the normal progression of aging as it relates to the immune system organizing around the senescence process leading to morbidity and ultimately mortality in the human population. Okay. So I, I, I don't want to leave you without at least an understanding or leave that aspect of leukemia without a little bit of a an explanation of um, T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I want you to know it's distinct from its B lymphoblastic counterpart because it shows a different kinetic pattern of overall disease progression. So there are a lot of similar regimens that are similar to treat the T-all and the B-all. And there are distinctions in response to that to different elements of therapy, and they've been observed. Now, similar to the B-cell ALL, the key prognostic determinant in T-ALL is what is known as a minimal residual disease response. However, unlike the B-cell ALL, other factors including age, white blood cell count at diagnosis, and the genetics of the ALL blasts are not independently prognostic when MRD response is indeed included. New studies have shown in TL and TL pathobiochemistry, now using more sophisticated genomic and epigenomic technology, that there has been an identified number of recurrent lesions that are grouped into various pharmaceutic, pharmaceutically targetable pathways 
Those are going to be ones we've been talking about a great deal. Notch, Jackstat, Vastylonostal 3 kinase, AKT mTOR, and of course the MAP kinase canonical versions of all oncogenic responses that you normally encounter. Now with contemporary chemotherapy, outcomes for de novo T-all disease are becoming better. We get a better prognosis. And now it seems the approach can be observed in B-all with with the B-cell population with approximately an 85% five-year event-free survival. That's a tremendous improvement since uh, the last century, the latter part of the last century, into the 1980s and 90s in particular. However, unfortunately, salvage has remained poor with less than 25% event-free and overall survival rates for the relapse disease. So there's certainly still a great deal of work to be done. Therefore, current efforts are focused on preventing relapse by an augmenting therapy for these high-risk patients. And you also at the same time want to uh, avoid toxicity in the favorable subsets that are likely to recover from the relapsing recurring disease. So recall that T-cell acute lymphovascular leukemia is about 12 to 15% of all newly diagnosed um, ALLs, that's acute lymphovascular leukemias, in pediatric patients. So it's this really sad disease. It's also noteworthy that its unique clinical and biological features are becoming more clear with more studies. And although historically the outcomes for TALL we're usually inferior with the B lymphoblastic leukemia um, cogeners. With current recent advances in, in pharmacotherapy, the event survival, event free survival, as the EFS rates have been steadily improving. And as I said, it's now exceeding about 85% of contemporary clinical trials, which is really good. We don't have a cure yet, but because we're studying this, it helps us with a constellation of diseases in humans that expand outside of the lymphomastic leukemia um, uh, disease paradigm. So I wanted to make sure that you had that, a little bit more information about uh, lymphomastic leukemia. Okay, so let's move on to our further discussion. Now, we had just mentioned to you about glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids play a major role in stress response. They're associated specifically with neuropsychiatric diseases, such as major depressive disorder and some forms of general anxiety disorder and bipolar. Some of these diseases occur in the general population at a frequency that is unrelated to chronicity, but major depressive disorder tends to increase over time in populations that may or may not have had MDD when they were younger. So it seems that there is a cluster of associated neuropsychiatric diseases that are linked to glucocorticoid metabolism in humans. So let's discuss steroid hormones a little bit, shall we? Remember that the adrenal medulla secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine. And it does so in response to what we call the sympathetic nervous system or the SNS. And that's how that's the stimulation uh, induction process. Hormones that are produced by the adrenal cortex, of course, uh, include steroids. And there are three different types. 
that we can talk about right here in authentic biochemistry. The glucocorticoids, most important one is cortisol. There are the mineral corticoids. The most important one is aldosterone. And of course, there are sex steroids, and those include the androgens, right? So the adrenal cortex has distinct zones, and these can um, become deteriorated during the aging process. So these distinct zones differ in their histological appearance and also in their regulation, and of course, for all of the enzymes associated with steroidogenesis. So you have the outer zona glomerulosa, and that produces mineral corticoids like aldosterone, and that's in response to stimulation. The middle zona fasciculata produces the glucocorticoids, particularly cortisol, and that's response to that's in response directly to ACTH, right? And the inner zona reticularis is adjacent to the adrenal medulla, and that produces androgens and DHEA. Okay. And we've discussed these in great detail previously. So again, the zona glomerulosa has cholesterol, which is uh, converted to pregnenolone, pregnenolone to progesterone, progesterone to 11-deoxycorticosterone or DOC. DOC is converted to corticosterone, then to 18-hydroxycorticosterone, and finally to aldosterone. In the zona fasciculata, pregnenolone, again, is converted to progesterone, and then to 17-hydroxyprogesterone, then 11-deoxycortisol to cortisol. That's the pathway for that, the synthesis of glucocorticoid cortisol. And then just to remind you, in the zona reticularis, the cholesterol is converted, of course, again to pregnenolone, then immediately to 17-hydroxypregnenolone, then to DHEA, which is in DHEAS, and then finally to androstenedione. Okay, so this is the three regions of the adrenal cortex, and that's where you get the zonal specificity in the production of these various steroids. And you can imagine that any one of those uh, pathways can be corrupted during the aging process at the level of the adrenal cortex neurodegeneration. So steroid hormones are also the seismic cholesterol, as you just now noted. Some of the cholesterol-derived precursors feed enzymatic pathways in all three of the zones because there's crosstalk. And you have, because these are lipids, they're soluble, they diffuse from the adrenal cortical cells as they are being synthesized. And of course, they're made on demand, and they are not the kind of hormones that are stored in any given cellular matrix, okay? Steroid action on target cells follows this trajectory. They travel in circulation bound to proteins because they're lipids, right? They can't move in circulation without being bound to a protein, and that is because they are not soluble in aqueous. So the kind of proteins we're talking about are corticosteroid binding globulin, there's a special name called transcortin. And of course, because they're lipids, they can also bind to serum albumin. They diffuse through their target cell membranes and bind through the receptive, uh, respective cytoplasmic receptors. Uh, so this component system that you probably are well aware of, if you're not, hopefully you've listened to other lectures that I produced that de detail this in great quantity and quality. Hormone receptor complexes rapidly dis translocate, of course, to the nucleus. 
and they bind as transcription factors to specific DNA sequences. These cis-acting sequences then are going to be uh, are going to erupt chromatin remodeling, and that will ultimately lead to the expression of those responsive genes. Steroid action on target cells work this way. Glucocorticoids, primary effect, of course, is on what do you think? Glucose metabolism. They oppose the effects, glucocorticoids, of insulin. Therefore, they raise blood glucose levels by decreasing glucose uptake by many body cells. And that's because of a decreased glycogenesis. Glycogenesis, uh, so there's less glycogen production. That's what that means. And you get an increasing amount of gluconeogenesis in the liver. And that can come from glycogen breakdown or from amino acid and glycerol substrates coming from fat stores. And so you get glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, right? But you don't get fatty acid conversion to glucose. You, however, you do get NADH and FADH production from beta oxidation of fatty acids in the liver and the reoxidation of those two nucleotides, pyridine nucleotides and flavin adenine dinucleotides is going to lead to the production of ATP from the electron transport chain generating ATP synthesis, right? the proton motor force. So that puts together all of that metabolism in one neat package. It took me less than a minute to discuss. Glucocorticoids, of course, contribute also to protein catabolism uh, by releasing muscle stores of protein. So therefore, they provide free amino acids for glucose production in the liver. That's part of the gluconeogenesis process uh, via, of course, transamination reactions feeding into the TCA cycle is a good way to get there. Um, glucocorticoids also promote lipolysis and they increase blood cholesterol content because, of course, that's going to be a precursor to the glucocorticoids. Uh, but also the high levels of increased blood cholesterol can lead to production of oxysterols associated with lipoprotein fractions in circulation. Indeed, even LDL and even HDL fractions can pick up oxysterols because of this um, influx of cholesterol into the serum and this can lead to the production of foam cells, cardiovascular diseases, as well as the potential of retargeting and repurposing um, metabolic pathways that are associated with the cardiovascular system or with other cellular beds, which can all then ultimately lead to oncogenesis as well. You see how this fits back into aging. So again, to just summarize, what are the biological actions of cortisol? Metabolically, they are they induced hyperglycemia. They are glycogenic, gluconeogenic, lipolytic, and protein catabolism is also a major feature. Uh, glucocorticoids like cortisol are insulin antagonists in the muscle and in the adipose tissue. So rather than storing glucose and converting it to lipid, for example, in the adipose, the reverse occurs. Now, here's a couple of other things you might not have thought about cortisol. Cortisol inhibits bone formation, and it actually stimulates bone resorption. Cortisol is necessary for vascular response to catecholamines. Of course, cortisol and, and all glucocorticoids are anti-inflammatory. That's why they're given upon inflammation. In fact, they suppress the immune response. They inhibit the anti-diuretic hormone secretion in action. They stimulate gastric acid secretion. Cortisol does. Cortisol is necessary for the integrity and function of the GI tract. 
uh, uh, the reproduction of those cells upon damage because of reactive oxygen. Cortisol stimulates red blood cell production. Cortisol alters mood and behavior. And cortisol finally is permissive for calorigenic lipolytic effects of the catecholamines. Okay, this is all canonical features of cortisol. We won't talk about the other uh, um, steroid hormones right now. We're going to get back into that. Don't worry, because it always is going to be folded back into our discussion of how the immune system is, of course, related to the aging process. Now, let me remind you of something that is also occurring during aging, and that is the potential for inflammatory disease. Now, of course, sepsis is an acute systemic inflammatory disease. And here I'm going to fold in a little bit of discussion of glucocorticoids. Now, this comes from a paper I was reading from Cytokine and Growth Factor Reviews. This was published back in April of 2017. That's volume 35, page 85. Don't worry, I'll put this reference in the show notes. So again, sepsis is an acute systemic inflammatory disease, glucocorticoids, function by binding to their receptor, the GR. And of course, glucocorticoids are very powerful anti-inflammatory agents, but they are not very useful in sepsis. So from this paper, we can say that when you consider sepsis as a glucocorticoid resistant disease, you can discover that glucocorticoid resistance and the mechanisms of glucocorticoid resistance are described not only in sepsis, but in auto-inflammatory diseases, okay? And so not only is, is glucocorticoid resistance found in sepsis and contributes to the pathogenesis of it, glucocorticoid resistance also contributes to auto-inflammatory diseases. Again, a major problem, a major bio, pathobiochemical disorder in aging. Now, I want to remind you a little bit more. I want to feed back a little bit back into this glucocorticoid pathway before we leave it, because I don't want to have to re-encounter it later and not have reminded you of this. Now, this comes directly from Stat Pearl, published back in uh, just September of this year. Let me go through this in a little bit of detail. Adrenocorticotropic hormone, of course, that's ACTH, is a hormone produced by the anterior pituitary. The hypothalamic pituitary axis, the HPA axis, controls it such that ACTH regulates cortisol and indeed also androgen production. Diseases associated with ACTH include Addison's disease, Cushing's syndrome, and outright Cushing's disease. So now I'm going to introduce another hormone complex. The, that I've discussed many times in authentic biochemistry. It's one of my favorite, actually. It's the pro-opiomelanocortin complex, or POMC. As it turns out, POMC gives rise to ACTH, of course, but also to melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which is also known as MSH. And that association is clinically important for the Addison's disease, which I'm not going to detail here. ACTH receptors are in the adrenal cortex, and in particular in the, as we just mentioned, the zona fasciculata and also in the zona reticularis. The receptors are, of course, G-protein coupled receptors, 
GPCRs, and how do they function via stimulation of adenocyclase, which of course is going to give you what? Cyclic AMP. That's going to, uh, uh, because you increase intracellular cyclic AMP, what happens canonically is you activate PKA, protein kinase A. Therefore, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, uh, where the anterior pituitary produces the ACTH, all of that is considered a tropic response. And indeed, tropic hormones indirectly affect target cells by, this is all de by definition, by first stimulating endocrine glands. So the corticotropin releasing hormone, the CRH, is released from the hypothalamus. That stimulates the anterior pituitary to release the adrenocorticotropic hormone, the ACTH. And then finally, ACTH acts on the target organ. And that, in this instance, is the adrenal cortex. And the adrenal cortex secretes the glucocorticoid from the zona fasciculata and androgens from the zona reticularis. The secretion of those glucocorticoids provides then a negative feedback loop because it inhibits the release of CRH, corticotropin releasing hormone, and therefore ACTH from the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary, respectively. Stress stimulates the release of ACTH, as we have mentioned many times in um, authentic biochemistry. So where's a link here that I want to bring up before we uh, stop today? There is a link between interferon and inflammasome-mediated damage in various disease states. Okay, In fact, they've even been linked to the coronavirus infection and subsequent disease pathology. Here's, here's a linkage that I mentioned way back in uh, early spring, which I'm now bringing back forward to you because it may be relevant. This comes from a paper published in the Journal of Neuroinflammation in 2019, volume 16, page 236. Don't worry, I'll put it in the notes. Now, understand this. The central nervous system resident microglia and astrocytes will produce cytokines of the type 1 interferon species. So those are called T1IFNs. They signal through a heterodimeric interferon alpha-beta receptor, one of which in generically will be called IFNAR, I-F-N-A-R. Now, binding of the type 1 interferons with the receptor activates the JAK-STAT signaling pathway. That leads to transcriptional activation of the interferon-stimulated genes. Those are, of course, called ISGs. And they mediate both pro- and anti-inflammatory functions of the type 1 interferons. And why can they be apparently contradictory? Because it's going to be in different cellular environments where those interferons are functioning through their IFNARs, right, through the receptors. So, indeed, type 1 interferon responses in the CNS can arise from viral infections in the CNS and even from traumatic brain injury. And you get neurodegeneration when this occurs. Okay? So, type 1 interferons can be protective or deleterious, however, in multiple sclerosis, where type 1 interferons are thought to exert and perform an anti-inflammatory response via the production of anti-inflammatory cytokine known as IL-10 with a simultaneous suppression of pro-inflammatory cytokines, one of the most lethal being interleukin-1-beta. 
That's why, actually, for you clinicians, interferon beta is a first-line therapy for multiple sclerosis because it limits the infiltration of lymphocytes into the brain and therefore decreases that relapse rate in spite of the evidence that overexpression of interferon alpha in the brain of, of, uh, of the uh, patient will associate with neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. So obviously, from that little summary from this paper I pulled, interferon subtype, titration of the interferon-mediated response because of concentration and protein-mediated effects and cellular residency are all going to be critical to resolve what looks like an apparent contradiction. Again, now why am I telling you that now? Because I want you to keep in mind about how type 1 interferons work in disease states, right? And that's what we're going to do next time. So I brought you all the way back around now to signaling through the, through the immune system. We just talked about microglia, but a moment ago, well, five minutes ago, actually, we were talking about T lymphocytes, right? So this is going to all aggregate around how the multiple components of the innate and the acquired immune system are going to be linked to causing those early stages of senescence leading to senescence-associated secretory phenotypes, which are going to signal for either neurodegeneration or for, unfortunately, the amplification of neurogenesis against a backdrop of, backdrop of no control, which can also lead to brain tumors, right? Uh, and then therefore heralding in a lot of the morbidities we see in the aging brain. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying from Authentic Biochemistry, thank you for listening. Please donate and bye for now.